We're in John chapter 6, right? We've been walking through John completely, and it has been a wonderful time. I felt like we've had multiple sermon series, and in this end of the week, we're going to be starting John chapter 7 next week. So I urge you guys, if you're going to be in Scripture, read John 7. Read that entire chapter. Sit down and eat on it, chew on it, right? But this has been John chapter 6. This is where we're going to wrap this up. And remember, John gives us the purpose statement of the entire book. And this is the lens in which we have to look through the entire book of John. And that's found in John 20, 30. And he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples that were not written in this book. Verse 31 says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So it's always good to understand where we're coming from right? What is John's purpose for writing this? Not just chapter 6, but chapter 1 and all the way to 2, 3. When we look and you guys read chapter 7, look at it through the lens that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in that you may have life in his name. So the entirety of chapter 6 rests on the reality that John is showing that Jesus is the bread of life, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. And I love this book. When, we, when I'm sitting down and I, uh, we have back in the back, there are these little scriptural journals. It's just the Gospel of John. On one page, it's words. On the other page, it's a notebook. So you can write down. It's a wonderful resource. But this book is full of Easter eggs. So I'm going to give a 30,000-foot overview of what we saw in this chapter before we end it up. Remember that chapter 6 took place during the Passover, right? The Passover is a feast of the Jewish people. They remember the time when they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and God sent a judgment to the Egyptians and the houses with the blood over them covered their sins and the angel of death passed over. So this is the context in which this entire chapter goes. And context matters. So like the death of the Passover lamb is foreshadowed of Jesus dying and giving his flesh and blood for the world. Just like Israel and joining the manna from heaven, we see this in uh, Exodus. Jesus feeds the crowd 5,000. Like Israel crossing the Red Sea, we see Jesus crossing the sea and walking on water, bringing the disciples to their destination. Like the Passover meal, it was a foreshadow that Jesus is saying, believe in me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And like Israel grumbling against Moses, the crowd grumbles against Jesus. We see all this in just one chapter. And that's where we'll pick up at the end that, that miracles have been performed. We saw him feed thousands of people. We saw him walk on water. The teaching has been given Remember, what Alex talked about last week is, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me. In MC this Thursday, we have one here that meets at Stowe, wonderful people. An individual said, you are what you eat. And that's so true. If you eat and meditate on the words of Jesus, you become more like him. But if you eat and meditate on the world... You become more like the world. 
You are what you eat. So we're going to see two types of people. This is where I'm going. False disciples, true disciples. That's as simple as I can make it. And false disciples want the provision that is found in products or in purpose, but not a person. I want to say that again, that false disciples want provision that is found in products or purpose, but not the person. True disciples see that the person is enough. That the person of Jesus is the true provision. Not that the bread, the bread that he provides is true bread. And he himself provides it. The product and the purpose are secondary. But the primary is the person. And that person is Jesus. And Jesus is God in flesh. And this is the distinction that Jesus is getting at when he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because you saw signs. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. What does he mean by that? False disciples want provision found in products or purpose, not a person. So in products, a false disciple enjoyed getting their stomachs filled, right? It's evident in this chapter. They provided for their immediate hunger, and that was amazing. They were excited. They loved eating. We have to do it daily. This is an amazing thing that he provided thousands of meals. Food is wonderful. It is necessary and daily. And Jesus does this sign where he seemingly pulls food out of the middle of the air. For a second, get into their mind. I want you to get into their thoughts. This guy shows up on the scene teaching and he can feed thousands of people. Thousands of people. What more can this man do? They were probably thinking, if he can provide food out of nowhere and we need that daily, this is wonderful and it's a necessity. They just wanted that provision. That's where it stopped. They just wanted bread. They didn't want him. Second, some sought him for purpose. And not his purpose for coming, right? We know that he came. We see all this in John chapter 3, that he came to save the world through his death, burial, and resurrection. But they wanted him for their own purposes. Now, see, seeking purpose for your life is not wrong. But misaligned purposes are dangerous. And I want you to hear this. If you're a Christian, you are a blood-bought son or daughter, and that's your identity. And your purpose is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, being salt and light to the world. They saw him providing food. They saw him doing miracles. They saw what he was doing, and it says, perceiving that they were about to make him king. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. They wanted their purpose to be fulfilled. These people were under Roman oppression. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were so excited that a Messiah would come, and a Messiah would come and defeat their enemies, make them a great nation. They wanted Jesus as king, but they had a skewed vision of that purpose. 
See, they wanted national freedom. That's not wrong, but Jesus comes to offer personal freedom. The enemy that he wanted to save them from was a dangerous enemy, but it wasn't the Romans. The Romans weren't the most dangerous enemy to the Jewish people. It's sin that separates them from God. If you have Jesus, you have provision and a purpose. That's why later in this gospel he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Because our greatest foe isn't the state. Our greatest foe is sin that dwells within our flesh. Our purpose and provision must come from the person of Jesus Christ, or we are dining on food that perishes. And this is where Jesus draws the line in the sand, that he is the bread of life. And he said it, and it was so explicit. As Alex was preaching last week, that Jesus is not a way, but the way. That if you feast on finite bread, you'll have a finite life, but the bread of life is eternal life. People don't want that. And we were faced with his response to the disciples. Jesus makes it painfully clear what the requirements are for following him. That you must believe. And that you must find your fulfillment in Jesus or you will starve. So let's dive into the first point. First point is false disciples. We're going to be in John 6. When many of his disciples heard, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Remember, he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. We talked about it last week. But Jesus, knowing it himself, his disciples were grumbling about them, said, do you take offense to this? Then what if, I were to see, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that there were those of him who do not believe, but who was going to betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's a hard saying, they say. It's not easy. Jesus is making this radical claim that he is the source and substance of all life. That he alone is the way to heaven. That he's not only a mere man. That if you were to have any nourishment in your life, it comes from Jesus and it comes from him alone. And the disciples who were following him didn't want that. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to be fed physically. Oh, but they don't want to be spiritually fed. They wanted liberation from the oppressive Roman occupation. The disciples' response is overwhelmingly negative. Many of his disciples turn their back on him. They can't bear the words that Jesus says. They find his teaching hard. This isn't just because he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He also said that he was the one that came down from heaven. They argued with him. They said, we know your family. We know your mother. We know your brothers. We know who you are. How dare you say that you came down from heaven? Next chapter, we're going to see in seven, even Jesus' brothers don't. They have some questions about his identity. 
These false disciples are committed to the Messiah's role, but only on a socio-political level. That's all they care about. Is it socially or politically helping me? They want one who's going to feed their bellies and liberate their nation. That's the Jesus they want to follow. And Jesus doesn't let off the gas. He presses down. He doesn't or ease his demands or reduce his claims in the light of their discomfort. Jesus assures them that a greater cause of offense is going to happen. That the Son of Man is going to ascend to the position where he was before. Take a second and think about that claim. It says the Son of Man is going to ascend to the place where he was before. The Son of Man. These are Jewish people. And the book of Daniel, Daniel's sitting there and he's writing this down. He says, I saw in my night visions and behold the clouds of heaven. There comes like one who is a son of man. All right? So this is what they're thinking when Jesus says the son of man is going to ascend back where they're at. He says, the son of man, he came to the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. And all in to him given dominion, glory, a kingdom, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which not, shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus is saying this about himself, that he is the one that's going to be given dominion, that he is the one that's going to be given glory, that he is the one that's going to be given a kingdom, that all peoples, all nations, all languages are going to serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. They're trying to make him king of a kingdom that they don't even understand. They're trying to protect their little finite life. This is what Jesus is saying. Where he was before, where he was before was heaven. He is God in flesh, and he's going to die and rise again, ascending and going back to the Father a year from now. This was Passover. The final Passover is a year away. I want you to have that timeline in your head while we're going through the book of John. This is important. We have 365 days till Jesus Christ dies on the cross. You think they find that offensive teaching now? How will they cope with it when it's actualized a year from now? When the Messiah's flesh and blood is sacrificed right before their eyes? How will they see it when a twisted crown of thorns get put on his head and a reed in his hand? They bow down before him, mocking him, saying, All hail, King of the Jews. Not only was his body nailed to the cross, but a sign above it saying as much that he is the king of the Jews, like in the song that we sung this morning. How much more offensive will that be when the one perfect man suffers at the hand of sinful men and is put in a tomb and will be raised on the third day and ascends with up to 500 eyewitnesses, Scripture talks about. They can't believe this, and they won't, because it doesn't fit their narrative. That's why Jesus says, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you here that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that those would not believe and who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many disciples turned their back and no longer walked with him. Jesus doesn't plead for them to stay. He speaks plainly. It's a tough saying, but these words are spirit and life. Life is found in trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ and listening to his teaching and obeying it. But like I said in John chapter 3, we must be born again. We have to be born again. Christ is speaking of regeneration, going from death to life. 
which is the one great need for all those who are offended at his teaching. That is our greatest need. You're never going to discern spiritual things until you have spiritual life. You must be brought alive by the Spirit of God first. Who did the raising? Says the Spirit. Now he states that the Spirit to bring about life by the words of God. That's why I keep hammering the same thing over and over every week, that we need to be scripture-saturated, not self-help books, not podcasts or seminars. Those are supplemental, but primary is the word of God. Because it is the spirit by the word that brings you from life to death, the spirit is the divine agent, and the word is the divine instrument. In 1 Peter 1.23, it says, We are born again of incorruptible seed by the word of God. We are made partakers in the divine nature by God, by feasting on his word. 2 Peter 1.4 says, he has granted to us precious and very great promises. Pause on that. Brothers and sisters, the one who are dealing with anxiety and depression and, and frustration, I know, I'm, I know that feeling. But Peter, who's going to say, to whom else shall we go later in this chapter, says, he has granted us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of a divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world and sinful desires, holding fast to the precious and very great promises that Jesus tells us, holding on, trusting in the words of Jesus. And this is what false disciples do not do. Here in John 6, 63, Christ explains how this is. The Spirit the words of God are spirit and they are life. That is, they are spiritual. They're carried out by the Holy Spirit to impart life. The great need for today is for us as the body of Christ to be scripture saturated. Sinners will never be saved without the word. Jesus says as much when he says the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you are spirit and life. It is the spirit that makes you alive through the word. And flesh ruled out. No profit at all. But there is a human responsibility. I can't get away from that because Jesus doesn't allow me to. That's why Jesus says the words that I speak unto you. The words that I speak to you. The words that I'm speaking to you. They are spirit and life. Think about that for a moment. God comes in flesh, talks to men, has them write down what is the entire source of life. It doesn't allow us to get off the hook. These words are given to believe. If you hear Jesus speak or read his commandments, you have an option. You have two, really. You can trust what he says or you can reject what he says. That's it. If you pick and choose, you've rejected. You either trust what he says or not. That's why Jesus says, but there are some of you who don't believe. Jesus isn't deceived by their outward coming to him. Just because they're here, he knows that they're not necessarily true disciples. You can follow him for a season, but if you don't truly believe in him, you'll find a reason to grumble and abandon him. It's not, you don't believe his words. If you don't believe his words, his provision and purpose profit nothing. 
But we, we get to see false disciples, but then we get to see true disciples. And this is like, just read it. Verse 67 says, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Jesus asked his closest disciples, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away? Do you want to leave? And you might feel that way today, right? Life gets tough. Unexpected expenses come up. We find it difficult to pray. It's hard to get into the word. Our power gets shut off. We blow a tire. Tie rod gets destroyed. Someone close to us dies. Multiple people die. Our whole world can feel like it's falling apart. But think about these men. These 12. They left everything. They have been waiting for the Messiah come. They dropped their nets. They've gotten 12 basket full of food. They watched him turn water into wine. They have seen him heal the sick. They have seen him cast out demons. They have seen thousands of people come to him. seen those thousands of people eat. They've seen them thousands of people follow for a season. Then the season gets tough. And what Jesus says is hard. And he watches the crowd of thousands dwindle down to less than that is in this room right now. How disheartening. I have a stadium full of people. Jesus says, you don't really want me. Okay. Twelve left. How disheartening. But you see Peter, the rock, the mouthpiece of the other, says, to whom shall we go? Who has the words of eternal life, the path that I need to be on? Who is better than you? These guys will all leave. But where are they going to find a better leader? Where are they going to find a better friend? Where are they going to find anything better than what you are? Well, why does he say that? The follow-up in the section says, Because you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's why they, to whom where we go, you have, you're the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. If everybody leaves you, okay. But we're not going to leave you because your words are life. So we see that they believed in Jesus and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. They believed his words. When Jesus speaks, Peter is saying, we believe that man. He, he's not lying. 
If he says he is the way, the truth, the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him, I have to believe that. I have to trust that. I have to believe he is who he revealed himself to be. And I have to believe that he revealed himself to be. To truly believe in someone, you have to put some skin in the game. You have to know that. We do that in life. Like, take the religious aspect out of it. Like, if I say I believe in a pilot's ability to take me all the way to California, but I don't get on a plane, I don't trust that pilot. Right? I can believe that he's a good pilot, but until I step foot on that plane, I do not have any trust in that pilot's ability to take me from Columbus, Ohio to LAX. So when I believed in Jesus, it's called action. So I took his word seriously. I tried to share his teaching with others because that's what the Great Commission commands us to do. I tried to live out his teachings. It was hard. It still is. It's difficult. I have this thing that helps me, and I hope it helps you too, but I have this mentality of, uh, I call them bricks of faith. If we've sat down and had a conversation, you have probably heard them before, but these little bricks of faith, and I remember I'd pray for stuff, and I'd write it down, and I would just constantly keep a record and a log of everything that I was asking for, and it was simple stuff where it was like, man, I'm dealing with this particular sin. Lord, rip this out of me. Rip this out of me, and then like I would get some freedom in that, or like we didn't know where you know, money was going to come from. I was scared. I was nervous. I said, Lord, I don't know what, I, I don't know. And I would write that down or I would just like want wisdom and understanding. And I would have a relationship with this God and I would talk to him. And I would, once again, I'd write it down and I would just be praying and try to obey his commandments. And then I would see God show up in crazy ways and, and people um, like my family I was the first Christian in my family. My family came to know Jesus. I was praying for that. I said, Lord, please, I don't know how they can do it. I don't know how they can understand. But then they did, and that was a, that was a little brick of faith where I put it down on the ground, and I had some stability because, like, if I get into a season, I'm like, <clears throat> I don't know how you're going to show up. But it's like, but you showed up for my family, right? You showed up for me that time. You showed up for me that time. Okay, I might only have three things, but you showed up for me those times. And then I put that down. These are bricks of faith that get laid down. And it takes time to build a foundation. It doesn't happen overnight. But guys, I'm telling you, if you have those times, Christian, if you're here, and you have those times that God has shown up, do not forget those times. Put them down and remember them and hold fast to them. Because that past can help you get through the present into the future. And with that, believing, that step of faith, that believing, like, I believe you're going to show up, Lord. I believe that you're going to change my life. I believe you're going to take me from death to life. I believe that you care about me. I believe that you hear me. And then when those get answered, you come to know, knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus is a lifelong process. And some of you in this room might have no bricks. Some of you might just have one, but hold on to that one. It's what Peter's talking about here, that he was moved by the words of Jesus on that fishing boat, left his nets, and the more and more he trusts in the works of Jesus, he saw that Jesus is the one who he says he is. And honestly, I do have to say this little caveat because 
Jesus may show up, and it might not be the exact way that you think it's going to be. But Peter is standing there, and he doesn't know anywhere else to turn. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, there is nothing that we need Jesus to give us that is more important than what he provides himself. There's nothing more purposeful than what Jesus gives. That's himself. There is nothing more glorious than what Jesus gives, and that's himself. He is the bread of life. He's the only one that will nourish us. The Father gave life to Jesus, and Jesus gives life to us. But the main question we must ask ourselves is, do we believe the claims that Jesus makes? Are we blown away by what Jesus has done? And are we prepared to believe whatever he says? Are we prepared to stay with Jesus no matter how he offends the people in the culture? Do we, like Peter, recognize that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Do we recognize that Jesus is the one that has the words of eternal life and no one else has those? But let us praise God because he is the one that drew us to Jesus. Once again, we were in MC and MC's missional community, and I was asking, like, what does this text mean? And, like, why do you, what, do you find any comfort in it? And, and somebody said, I find comfort in it because that means that Jesus chose me. That Jesus took me from death to life. He is the one. Jesus gives us life by the Spirit through the words of Jesus. These are the words of life. And if you believe, you will come to know that he is the only one of God. But if you don't believe, you will walk away. And that path is death. Hell separation. Completely. Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? So let us answer like Peter, to whom shall we go? Let us all in this room be found as true disciples willing to risk it all to be salt and light to a decomposing and dark world. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Father, we don't have anything but you. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding. I pray that you would teach us to observe all that you have commanded to us. I pray that we would live a life of repentance. If we have any anger in our heart, I pray that we would rip that out and we would ask God to take that away from us. I pray that we would live gracious lives. Give us wisdom to be more like your son. Father, if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know you as Savior and you are pulling them, taking them from death to life, I pray that they would ha understand the hope and promise, the fact that it is not them who makes an intellectual decision, but it is you who raises from the dead. And you will carry out your work to completion. Father, I pray that we all would believe better, that we would trust better, 
that we would not look to our circumstances, but we would look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that everything else is falling away and destroying away and decomposing, but we stand firm because you are the King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the one who redeemed us and restored us, and you are building your church, and you are coming back for your bride. I pray that we would stand faithful, not in fear, and not overlording, but gentle and lowly. I pray that we would be gentle people, serving, having your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. question that Jesus asks do you want to go away as well if your response to that question is like like the like Peter Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know you that you are the Holy One of God if that's your choice then please join with us in communion today because our Lord offers us rest. He offers us eternal life. He offers us every good thing that we, that we could ever have. Not material things, right? We, we, we get forgiveness of our sins. We get freedom in Christ. We'll have eternal life. These are the things that matter. And so that's what we, that's what we get to do when we... Um, or that's what we get to proclaim, I mean, when we, when we take communion, which is what we're, what we're doing right now. We're proclaiming, Jesus, you are king. Jesus, you are the one who has given us freedom from sin. You're the one that has given us forgiveness. It, it's, it's an amazing thing that we get to do. And it's a, it, it's a celebration. It's a feast that we get to partake of. So, like I said, if you answered like Peter... You know, if he, if he were to ask you, do you want to go as well? If you answered like Peter, to who else shall we go? You're the one that we believe in. Then please join with us as we, as we take, partake of communion. Uh, and if, but if that isn't you, if you don't have that trust, then we would ask that you do not partake. And going even further, we, we, we typically we read from 1 Corinthians 11 for the, the Lord's Supper passage. And uh, Paul, before, or right after giving the institution of the Lord's Supper, he said, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so the, the Corinthian church, they had been showing partiality. You know, they, there was a division between the rich and the poor there, which is completely against the, the gospel. The gospel brings oneness. And so he's saying, hey, you're acting in a way that is unworthy of the gospel. You are acting in a way that uh, will bring, make you guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on to say that there were actual consequences, physical consequences, to them partaking of it in an unworthy manner. And so if your life is not in keeping with the gospel, we, we, we all sin. 
and there's forgiveness in Christ. But if your life is not in keeping with the gospel, if you are, have a habitual sin that you are giving into, then we ask that you would not partake of communion. But So, so the, the, normally we would have one table that we would come to as, as a family to show our, our oneness. Um, but because of coronavirus, we, we have the buckets and uh, our ushers will be going around with those. So we would ask that if you're going to be joining us, that you would raise your hand uh, and they'll, they'll come and they'll bring you uh, the, the elements. And I, just a practical note, um, these, this packaging can be difficult, so I'd recommend that you get the, the bread, out ready, uh, bread out now so that we can, we can take it together. Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you were good to us, that you gave us your son, that you gave us his flesh and blood as a sacrifice that can bring us forgiveness of sins. Thank you for his broken body. We don't deserve that grace and mercy, but you have given it anyway. And it's in the Lord Jesus' name that we pray. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Lord, not only did you give us forgiveness of sins, but you gave us a covenant promising it. You promised us eternal life if we believe. You've promised us an eternal inheritance that we get to live with you in the new Jerusalem for eternity. We thank you for this covenant, Lord. We thank you that your word is a sure thing. Help us to live in such a way that shows that we trust in these promises to, to show this this world that doesn't believe in you, how good you are and how faithful you are.